We are in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Florence. Yeah, you can all be seated. Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, good to see you all. The noon, this is, this is the place to be, the noon gathering. Um, my name is Evan Wickham. I don't think I said my name before. If you're new to Park Hill, welcome. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church community. It's one of the joys of our lives, high highs, low lows. Uh, it is quite a rush to lead a church in all the ways, and so thrilled to be doing life in various ways with you. And uh, this morning, okay, I just want to give a disclaimer. I don't think I see, yeah, there are some small kids. So I just want to let you know that today the, the theme is heavily involved in sexuality today because that's where Paul goes. So if you um, have any, uh, anything you want to kind of you know, keep your kids from as far as topics, that just let that be a disclaimer. Um, but we are in Colossians 3, and this letter is all about how to mature. And so Paul gets into some, some very concrete embodied areas of maturity today, uh, but not just mature in general, but like mature in your identity as a loved child of God. Um, that's why Paul writes, and that's why we still read it, because that, it's so timely for us today. Last week, just, just to give some backdrop before we get into the, the actual content, um, Paul made a huge point last week. If you were here, you remember, Paul said this, basically, if you trust your whole life to Jesus, you are now a loved child of God in the children of God. That is the truest thing about you. Like, nothing can change that. You can't, you can't, you, so you can't perform to make that more true about you. You are already, the truest thing about you, your core identity, is that you are a loved child of God in the family of God. There might be other things that are true about you on several levels, like you're a woman, you're a man, your son, you're a daughter, you're a hard worker. Maybe you're like, I'm, you identify as a bad dancer or something, um, or, or a heavy drinker. Maybe that's true about you. Uh, a deep thinker, you think of yourself that way. And then there's, there's more fixed ethnic identities and sexual identities we experience, like black, white, brown, Asian, and the, these things are true. And then gay, straight, trans, non-binary, these things that we associate with our day-to-day -day like concrete experience. And, and so any of these might be true about your day-to-day -day life in some way. Um, and some of them, I, some of these identities are 
true differently about us. And, and yet, I, I do want to say none of them, none of those identities are the truest thing about you anymore in this family. They are not the truest. They are true without being the truest. Now that you're in Christ, your core identity above every other identity is loved child within God's community of children, period. Which means three things, at least, three great things. Number one, you already belong here and you don't need to perform to validate your worth here, period. Super great news. It's like the gospel, right? It's already the truest thing. You are in Christ and you belong here, uh, which means, number two, the old ways of finding your security don't apply to you anymore. Like, you no longer get your value from how young or old your body looks, how much money and stuff and degrees or lack thereof you have. Those are the old ways of finding, like, whether you matter or not. They don't, they, they don't apply to you anymore as a loved child of God, and that can't change about you. So, but don't get me wrong. Right now, you're like, those things still feel really important. <laughs> and that's true. The old value systems feel very real, especially when you have the world, the culture out, that we live in, and then our own desires, and then like the unseen powers of Satan and demons, like which Jesus believed in. Like all these things conspire against us to say more money, higher class education, whatever makes you matter more. Uh, a different body, different relationship status will make you more valuable. But that's the earthly system of measuring your goodness and beauty. It can still feel real to our hearts even when we're Christians and know in our minds it's not true. It's so in us. The gravity's so strong on us. But the reality for you and me is, is that you already belong. You trust Jesus with your life. You already belong in Christ's kingdom. You, in Paul's words, you died to the old values. They're dead to you. And you've been raised with Christ into a whole new way of seeing yourself and others in God. And it's, which means, number three, uh, the task of the church now, you could say the family business, our family business, is to help each other remember who we are. That's, why, that's the why of church. That's like the bread and the cup, the tables. What's the command? Remember me. Remembering is the command. That's why we read scripture. We gather in community. It's why we sing songs on repeat. How many times have we sang, holy, there is no one like you? Like so many times because we forget. We forget our minds. We're spiritually, we have this amnesia, which, you know, points back to last week's kind of goofy illustration from that rom-com movie, 50 First Dates, if you're here. Drew Barrymore playing opposite Adam Sandler. What's her problem in the movie? She has amnesia. Every day she forgets the last. So she, what? She has to wake up, re-watch the video to remember who she is, who she's loved by, where she belongs. And again, goofy illustration, but really like accurate illustration to who we are and our job. That remembering and re-remembering is the heart of life as children of God. It always has been. How does our family story begin? So after Genesis in the Bible, our family, the children of Israel, were rescued from slavery in Egypt, and God's main message to them is like, you are no longer slaves. 
That is not your identity. Here's how you're going to live into your new family status. Remember me, Yahweh, your God, who rescued you from Egypt and is bringing you into a land of fullness of life, you know? And remember me by worshiping me. And part of that is don't forget where you came from. You can't forget Egypt. Because if you forget the old system, you'll forget what you were saved from, how great your salvation is. And then the temptation is what? It's to slip back into the exhausting, dehumanizing behaviors of the old system. And miss out on what Jesus calls life to the fullest. That was a favorite phrase of Jesus, life that is truly life. That's, and that's the task. That's our, that's our task. Set our alarm, rewatch, rewatch the movie every day, come back to the table every week, because in Paul's words, you died to the old system. The old way of finding out whether you matter, you're dead to it. Your guilt and your shame and everything that comes out of that, you're not stuck in it anymore. That old life was nailed to the cross, to use Paul's language. That's visceral. Nailed to the cross. Now you've been raised with Christ into a whole new way of seeing. And that's the invitation, to remember to see clearly, to see what? Who you already are. You don't have to do anything to like make it true. It's true already, but you do have to remember that it's true. You're a loved child within a community of God's interdependent family. Here's the problem. We tend to think of ourselves as I am one child of God. I'm an only child, almost. Me and my personal only child salvation. No, no, no. We need, like desperately, each other. And we have each other. We already do. We need to remember that and live like we, ha we need each other. And so... Uh, so this is why we need a community rule of life. I use the word rule, we're allergic to rules, but it's an ancient word that means a way of ordering our steps. It comes from the ancient practices of the Benedictine monks. And this is kind of like our list. I mean, this is basic Jesus stuff, right? Bible, prayer, fasting. Next week, we're gonna fast. If you've never fasted, you guys, it's a whole body my body and the body together, experience of hungering together for God to remind us who we are. And so we're gonna do it, fasting and Sabbath and all those things. As Jesus followers, we practice his way, not to earn God's acceptance, but to remind ourselves of the acceptance we already have in Christ. This is why we practice the way of Jesus, you guys. Which brings us to the text today. Here we go. Um, where Paul addresses problems that arise when Jesus followers don't do this stuff and instead we let the old earthly practices shape us. Um, okay, so Paul starts in chapter three, verse five. He's very blunt. Are you ready for this? It's a blunt command. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, the old system. So, so, so see what Paul sees. He sees the old system, the old way of saying you matter, you measure up, you don't measure up, the old values. He sees them as a corpse. And the idea here is keep the corpse dead to you. <laughs> keep it dead. I'm getting like Last of Us vibes right now. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen the show. I, I, am, I played the game. I'm OG Last of Us. So I played the PS4 game first. Um, I haven't seen the show, 
And, and if the show is like the game, it seems very similar based on you know, screenshots of the show I've seen. Even like the design of the zombies looks the same as the game. The basic goal is simple. Keep the corpses dead and the living alive. <laughs> if you do that, you'll be fine. That's like the basic goal. And that's what Paul's saying here from Colossians 3 verse 5 all the way through. He's saying, imagine the old values and sinful practices, that earthly system, imagine it as a corpse. Because that's what they are, dead to children of the living God. So put off behavior that digs up the corpse. And Paul's about to list behaviors that abuse the good gifts of sex and speech, those two good gifts. And instead of abusing sex and speech, which actually rips apart the family and rips apart your soul, instead, Put on behavior that keeps the corpse dead to you and keeps your child of God identity alive to you. And that's the rule of life, the child of God living stuff. Actually, it's the life you long for. That's what it leads you to. You have this life available, and the rule of life reminds you, oh, this is the life I long for. And in next week's teaching, David Wade, one of our leaders, he's going to teach, he's going to talk about that second Part, the behavior that leads to life. He's going to talk about that. But today, we're looking at the first part, the behavior, the corpse behavior. Thank you very much. That's what I get. So I get to talk. Happy Sunday. Um, all, the dead, all the dead stuff. So, so Paul wants to know, Paul wants us to know that these certain, the corpse behaviors, they're actually very normal to culture. They're seen as normal. And so we should not be surprised if it challenges us because we're products of our culture. You know, there's, there's ways we're formed by what we read, who we talk to, where we live, the music. Every, the only way not to be formed by your culture is to live like as a hermit and in the woods by yourself. So we're all formed by our culture. And Paul knows that these, these corpse behaviors from the old system of valuing yourself we tend to believe them even in our bodies. So, so when, we, when we hear Paul now, it's going to confront us. And, and so <clears throat> it's kind of like he, he makes the analogy of clothing. <clears throat> There's old, these old patterns, they have to be taken off, intentionally removed clothing that doesn't fit the occasion. Think of wearing a bathing suit to a wedding or something. That would be weird. I don't know, maybe, has everyone done that? That's kind of bold. But, uh, no, I don't think anyone's done that. It would be weird. Uh, and so Paul's, Paul's saying this clothing, the corpse clothing, doesn't fit the kingdom environment that gives you life that you long for. And so to remember who we are and live the life we long for, we must intentionally remove the corpse practices. This is Paul's blunt language, you guys. Intentionally remove it and put on the kingdom stuff. So what are these corpse practices? Paul gives two lists of sins, okay? Now let's be real. Who has the sin lists like tattooed on your arm because they're your life verses? They like inspire you. No, they're not. I don't think the lists of vices, the vice lists are like our inspiring life verses. Anyways. Uh, <clears throat> and yet, in almost every letter of the New Testament, the author includes at least one sin list, if not more. Even Jesus has his sin list. 
Um, and it's in Mark 7. It's very similar to Paul's. Look at Jesus's at the top. I'm going to line them up with Paul's right here. Do you have that next slide? Do you have that slide? There you go. So the top one, that's Jesus in Mark 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. And he starts sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, and he gets into anger. See, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from inside and defile a person. That's Jesus. Look at Paul's. Very similar structure. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly. He starts sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, and then anger and all of that. Very, very similar structure. And you'll see that in the New Testament. A, a, a lot of the later writers after Jesus, Jesus never wrote, but after the Gospels, they match Jesus' sin list. Um, because Paul's just following Jesus here. And why? Because Paul and Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is like, this, you need to identify this stuff so that you can live as your truest self. Loved child of God, belonging in this family. These things uh, actually hinder that belonging you long for. And I'm very aware that this is not polite. This is not like kosher to talk about in today's culture. Like people don't like being told how to live, you know. Uh, even Christians, imagine that Christians don't like being told to live like Christians. Imagine that. Uh, side note, I love, uh, I love what Brian Loritz said at last House of Learning. Who was here at last month's House of Learning on, on race and racial reconciliation in the church? So good. Brian pointed something out that I thought was insightful. Um, in black church and Hispanic church, it's more accepted for the pastor to speak in fatherly directives, like do this and don't do that. And people are like, yes, I feel, I feel like safe under authority or whatever. But in white church context, people don't like being told how to live so much. You know, predominantly white culture, pastors, in white culture, pastors have to like, hey, come alongside, let's walk together. Here's my journey and my struggles and like how it's resonating with me. Come along, you know? And, and we have to be like, befriended into conviction. Um, and, and I know that's not just a white thing, but it helps to locate ourselves. It helps to locate our culture. Because the reality is, we live in a time when the ultimate value is you do you. Like, be your authentic self. Even if, even if you don't know exactly who your authentic self is or it keeps changing or whatever, do it. Um, and the result is, a lot of the Western church in our churches, there's not a lot of confrontation or, or speaking directly to specifics around sin. That's just the natural byproduct of this cocktail we're in, kind of. But of course, most Christians have their own lists of the bad stuff that they like to talk about, and the more conservative they are, the more they tend to talk about their list of bad stuff, you know. But the fact is, we don't often get into the nitty-gritty of sinful behavior. Because who wants to be seen as judgy? I mean, I, I don't, but I have the mic, so I guess here we go. Um, so this, this isn't, but even that fear of being seen as judgy, it doesn't seem like Jesus or Paul are very afraid of that. Uh, because, actually, they're 100% grace, 100% truth. They're not, they're not allergic to either one. And so, uh, so we're going to follow Jesus as best we can here. So Jesus and Paul get specific about behaviors that belong to the corpse. Uh, and, and they keep you living 
under a faulty value set to define your worth. In Jesus' words, they come from within and defile. In Paul's words, put them to death, the old earthly nature, and he, he adds, this is why the wrath of God is coming? Goodness gracious, Paul. Wrath of God stuff, that doesn't resonate with us. Um, the anger of God, the anger of God. Turns out God gets really emotional when it comes to the health and safety of his kids. Like speaking as a parent, when someone, if someone were to try to hurt my kids, uh, or if they're legitimately hurting each other, you'll bet I'll have a visceral reaction um, because I'm angry because of love. And I wouldn't be much of a parent if I weren't. In the same way, Jesus and Paul are not shy about the specifics of sin. They're passionate that we remember who we are and live into the new world we already belong to, the life we were made for. Turns out living in sin will keep you from living in what Jesus called life that is really life. And that's what God wants for us. Not just do's and don'ts. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's life and death. It's actually life versus death. And so, uh, so it's important to confront the death stuff, the death practices. So how does Paul do this? Okay, here we go. Specifics, you ready? Um, he arranges two lists, and he has sex on one side and speech on the other side, sex and speech. Um, two great things, like great gifts from God. Like sex and speech are central to human life, and, and you can't be a human and not think about these things kind of a lot, right? And that's good. Uh, they both have huge potential for good and for massive heartache, both. You could say both sex and speech have the power to bring both life and death. Good gifts from a generous God that can be, that can be abused and end up tearing the fabric of the community and our own souls. And so today Paul describes what it looks like when humans don't bless but harm themselves and the community through the abuse of these two things, sex and speech. Uh, and, and Paul's saying, hey, again, he's just blunt. He's like, the abuse of these things, the abuse of sex and speech, the only way to deal with these abuses is pretty clear. There's no halfway solution. There's no compromise negotiation or toying with the possibility of letting it slide. Paul's very blunt, when God's kids abuse sex and speech, it's like termites and rats in the house. You don't pity them, you tent and you fumigate them. Uh, there's an extermination required, otherwise they swarm again. And the house doesn't last, it gets condemned and all that, and your food gets poisoned from rats, whatever. The analogy breaks down. But uh, that's how Paul wants us to think about these things. Behaviors that belong to the old system, this corpse. So he's like, make them dead to you. Make them dead, because it's life. It's life on the line. It's, you get life. So here's the two lists that Paul gives us, and this is, how they, this is the order they appear. Verse five is, uh, it's led by sexual morality, and, and, and then verse eight, the list is led by anger, and then everything kind of modifies the two. Everything describes those two. So let's, let's talk about that first list. We're not gonna spend a ton of time on the second list today because our whole house of learning in May, we're doing a whole seminar on that second list. Uh, Dr. Gary Bashir is, is flying down from Portland to do the May seminar on forgiveness culture versus cancel culture. 
and what it looks like to become a community driven by anger and then, and then or to move from anger to, to release of anger and forgiveness. It's going to be, I think, profound for us. So I'll talk about the list on the right, the anger list, a little bit today, but most of the content will be on the left. Um, so what is, what is sexual immorality? What is this phrase? Um, simply put, you know, the way, when you see the phrase sexual morality in the New Testament, it's the Greek word pornea. It happens a lot in the New Testament, and it happens a lot in actually the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And pornea, it's this junk drawer term that basically means any sexual activity outside or before marriage between a man and a woman, husband and wife for life. And that's, yeah, that's essentially what this first list is getting at. The point, again, the point isn't to say, you know, what are all these sins? What do they all mean? But all, this whole list of embodied and sexual corpse behavior, basically, he, he's making a point <laughs> that sexual sin in all its forms, he's saying this, it's really good at making you forget who you are. It's just really good at keeping you from the life you long for. It's, so notice in Jesus and Paul's list, they list sexual immorality first, not because it's the worst. It is not the worst sin, okay? Uh, it just has a uniqueness about it. According to 1 Corinthians 6, where your body somehow is, you're, it's really good. Sexual morality is really good at, uh, at sending us into a cycle of desire, like making us forget who we actually are and what our deepest longings really are. Um, even secular society is recognizing this, not even Christians, like secular sociologists. In 2018, The Atlantic published a popular article entitled The Great Sex Recession, and the authors found the more sexually free we become as a society, the less sex we actually have. Uh, in another Atlantic article entitled Where Sex Positivity Falls Short, the author writes about sex scenes in Netflix shows like Euphoria and Sex Education, which I haven't seen. So I don't know if that's surprising to you. I haven't seen those. Uh, where sex is depicted, where in those shows, those sex is depicted as happening openly, often, with every character having multiple partners of various genders. And this secular article basically said, they're, they're like, they're like we, we like the idea of sexual freedom. They're not Christians. They're like, sexual freedom, sex positivity, no shame. Great. No shame is really good. I agree with that 100%. Um, the problem is those shows are fantasy. Sounds awesome, that kind of free living, but these TV shows only actually exist in a fantasy world. So the author likes this, you know, sex-positive message that alleviates shame, which is great, but admits that unfortunately the reality, the basis doesn't exist of that kind of freedom. Turns out life doesn't imitate art, right? So, so even non-Christian thinkers and journalists and sociologists are realizing what the scriptures have said all along, when humans put our desires first, they're often satisfied last. In many ways, today's sex-positive movement is trying to lift sex higher, which is good, but the premise has, has an inverted movement. Ironically, it ends up having a, low, a, sex, a view of sex that's so low. It's very low, way too low. Because in our culture, I think this is right, broadly speaking, Sex is defined as basically pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults. 
I had the word two consenting adults in there, but I, I left that out because that's not the rule anymore. That's not the definition. Basically, sex is play for grown-ups. And the idea is just physical, biological, just the coupling of two bodies for sexual release. As long as the participants say it's mutually beneficial and consensual, hey, what's the big deal? It's play for grown-ups. Um, I, I mean, that's very common. That shouldn't surprise us. We feel this. We get this message. And, and I'll just add one more thing. Like, our culture is saturated with this message. Like, uh, think about your great-grandpa or grandma 100 years ago. How much skin would they see in five years? Like, it's all that amount of skin we see it in one day now, you know. It's wild what we are living through. Um, and it's a strong current. The current is strong. It's hard to resist. There is limitless grace and space for healing in the church of Jesus Christ, for, like, healing from inappropriate views in our minds and all of that. But because the constant flow of sex via social media and entertainment, it, 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 sh it shapes us. It shapes how we see ourselves. And, and here's why this is sad. I'm not just trying to rehash an article. Uh, it, it's sad because then the church agrees with this. So the church comes along. This is why Colossians is so important, why we are in the scriptures. Because unfortunately in America, the church has come alongside culture's definition of sex as recreational activity, play for grown-ups. The church is like, yep, Sex is great, it's play for grown-ups, but you can only do it in your marriage and only if it's a man and a woman, all right? Just true love waits, so just white-knuckle it until your wedding night, it's gonna be great. And that's the theology of sex a lot of Christians get. That's why the purity culture of the 90s and the early 2000s messed so many of us up. No wonder it did that. Because that purity culture with the flimsy theology of humanity and sexuality it's just a few flimsy rules floating around culture's massive river. And then this, this appendix of hurry to get married so you can finally do it. And with almost zero rich biblical theology around sex and singleness and marriage and celibacy as equally flourishing gifts in the kingdom, we don't know, we don't have categories for this. We need categories for this. So, so, no wonder we don't have category. No wonder most people in the 21st century around the they're outside the church looking in, going like, "You're waiting for what? Are you kidding? What are you guys? Like tra backward, traditional, uneducated nonsense." We're like, "I just have to wait." It's what I was taught. But when we actually pay attention, you have I think it's slide 13. Slide 13. Is anyone? Huh? Slide 13. Do you have that? Uh, it looks like the, they pieced out. Thanks. Uh, I think it's slide you know, 13. There it is. That's okay. They're like running around, like come running back to the computer. That's awesome. Um, here it is. So here it is. So everything I just said, try to remember. And it says... So, so the point is that the church adopts culture's view of sex is just fun, just wait, and it's thin, 
But when we actually pay attention to the biblical authors and most of church history, we discover a dazzling, robust, rich vision of sexuality, singleness, marriage, and celibacy. And it's also compelling. It turns out the Christian tradition offers a much higher view of human sex than most people, most American Christians have dared to imagine. And, and, and it, here it is. From the, first, from the first page, I keep forgetting what side. So from the first page to the last page of Scripture, the, you know what the Bible begins and ends as? It's a story about, capital M, marriage. This is the story of the Bible. It is a story of um, the ultimate marriage with a capital M, not between humans, but where God's space, heaven, and our space, earth, are joined together in the beginning in a cosmic interlocked union, which is God's entire goal for the end. One day, Jesus is going to return, and heaven and earth will be interlocked in intimate union forever, where there will be no such thing as marriage for humans anymore, and no such thing as singleness for humans anymore, both. Did you hear that? No couples anymore, and no singles anymore. What is this world that we're moving into? How do, we don't have categories for this, but the scriptures do. And, and church history does. What is this? It'll just be billions of beautiful humans, you and me included, made in God's image, truly naked and unashamed in perfect intimacy with one another and our creator. And until then, you know what our, you know what our task is? The spirit-filled family of Jesus, we exist as the betrothed, that's an ancient word, committed bride of Christ, longing for that final eternal union with Christ. And that's married and single Christians alike. We're awaiting together, we're waiting. Married, you're married couples, you're waiting for the ultimate marriage that all temporary marriages and temporary singlenesses are designed to point to. Do you get this vision? This should shape your hope. This is why you can look at the news and be like, this headline's important, but not end of the universe important. The war in Ukraine is very, very important. Pray for peace. Go help if you can. It's not end of the world important. So whether, let me just dig into this because I think we're formed. We're formed and we, and we need Jesus. So whether you're married here and you're living into sexual faithfulness to your spouse alone or you're unmarried here and you're living into sexual faithfulness through your celibacy alone, all of your sexuality, all of us, it's we're equally directed toward that final union of heaven and earth where loneliness will give way to perfect intimacy once and for all. And I realize that I'm a married man saying this, which actually kind of can filter the message a little bit, which is why, my God, we need celibate, single pastors, men and women, who stand up and champion hope rooted in the marriage supper of the Lamb as fully flourishing leaders in the church. Um, I think we've platformed marriages pretty well in the evangelical church. Sadly, many platform marriages have crumbled in public. But I think it's also time we shouldn't denigrate marriage. I think scriptures, I believe, teach that marriage and celibacy, marriage and singleness rise and fall together. And when you have one over the other, there's an idolatry. And we've done marriage idolatry. And, and it is time to platform, you know, single pastors like Ariel Dorch in our church, single celibate woman, Greg Pike in our church, single celibate man, as f f equal leaders in the church for the beauty and body of Christ, for the body of Christ uh, building up and for the glory of, 
Christ himself. Um, do you see the vision here? And so right now, until Christ comes back, followers of Jesus, married or single, embrace Jesus' vision for human sexuality, where sex is infinitely, infinitely more than two bodies getting pleasure from each other. Sex is husband and wife, made in the image of God, engaging in a powerful union of the whole person, mind, body, soul, which is just one way. God's children have the privilege of reflecting his love in the world. It's not the main way, it's not the only way. Please hear me, marriage and sex is not the only or main way that humans show the love of God to the world. Both married and single have equal privilege of doing that. Through, their, through our family commitment to sexual faithfulness, together as Christ's family, so, so I just want to say the call to put off pornea, to put off sexual immorality and live into the faithful life you long for, that call isn't just for the hormonal high school student just grabbing on to life until he gets married. You know, it's also for the couple in their 60s contemplating retirement. That call to sexual flourishing isn't just for the straight married newlyweds in the church. It's also for our gay or trans brothers and sisters in Christ who are living into their celibacy or their mixed orientation marriages, which is a term for a marriage between a man and a woman where one of the spouses is not a straight person primarily, and yet they live into their marriage. Uh, praise God we have marriages like this in our church. We do. Praise God. And the point, both celibate and married people. I think slide 14. You got it. No, he's on it now. He's like super in. That's my son. So he's pumped. The point is, both celibate and married people are equally called to put to death sexual immorality and cheer each other on in sexual flourishing in the way of Jesus as celibate and married family in Christ. We've been raised with Christ, you guys, which means that this is not only possible, it's who we already are. What have we been missing? We've been missing who we are. And this whole thing is headed to this marriage where all there will be is total intimacy that doesn't depend on sex. And so the world's, can you imagine, like, can you imagine if we live this way? Physically present and non-sexually intimate, fully, like, families doing vacations together and singles and marrieds, young and old, living life together in such a way where the world looks in and says, what on earth is this church thing where there's intimacy without sex? And there's trust because they actually keep their covenants. And they honor their speech. All on the basis of a crucified Lord who, by the way, was also celibate. We follow a single dude. Um, so let, let me in that family. Like it's, they're like, let me in that family. He was single, by the way, because he knew the marriage he was living for to us. Which brings us to the second list about honoring our speech. Paul's like, hey, but now you must also rid yourselves of all these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to each other. That stuff is dead to you. The new life is already yours. Remember. So the first list about sex, then he moves into speech, your language. And it's no coincidence that anger leads the way. In the abuse of speech, anger's the headline. Uh, so Ephesians 4.26 says something interesting. Be angry and what? Be angry and do not sin, implying that there's a non-sinful anger. That's cool. That's refreshing. 
So sometimes when I'm angry, there's justification. I think, yes, absolutely, God is angry at sin because it hurts his kids. Anger is an outflow of his love, and the same goes for us. There's a time and a place for good and godly anger. I think it's when we do it in community, through prayer and lament and fasting like we will next week. Angry, maybe you're angry right now at this sermon. Some people have expressed anger to me today at this sermon, not at me, but at, at the idea that this preaching sounds so ideal and their experience of it has not become real. Be angry. Why is the church not being the family? Be, be, there's people being hurt by being isolated and alone in a place that's promising that they'll belong. That's like a weird kind of gaslighting, you know. So, so, how, so I'm angry about this. Lord, help. I'm, so I'm going to fast next week. Hopefully you join the church in fasting. Lord, bridge the gap. Close the gap between the message and the experience for your family. Um, so that's righteous anger. That's good anger. But Paul's warning us against a sinful anger. Uh, what is that, sinful anger? Well, he said, look at the rest of the Ephesians verse. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Apparently, there's an anger that creates a climbing wall, like a bouldering grip. You ever been rock climbing? You grab the thing, and, and, and it gives you a foothold. Apparently, there's a kind of anger that Satan goes, oh, oh I'll use that. And, and unconfessed, as it festers, he, he can then go to work and create a little cavern to camp out in. And it happens. Honestly, most of the deliverance ministry I've been a part of where there's legitimate, like, multiple elders part of, like, a legitimate moment where there's demonic activity in someone's life, it goes back to a, to a root of bitterness. Just like that says, like, do not give the devil a foothold. Why? He'll happily camp out. Um, now, I'm not going to spend much time on this because this is what Dr. Bashir's is going to talk about, how the enemy has camped out in the church. And we're canceling each other and canceling Christian churches, each other. It's just wild. I'll say this for now. Anger and outrage are virtues in our culture. Like, if you want to sell books, be angry. Act angry. If you, if, you want to, if you want your tweet to go viral, make it an angry one. Outrage. And we'll repost it and respond with our own cleverness, you know. Uh, so it's all built on anger and outrage. And it's interesting that we're citizens of heaven in America. The analogy has been drawn like we're, exi we're God's exiles in the Babylon called America, and yet the Babylonian politics have such a pull on our hearts. But it's not our citizenship. And yet you have people actually leaving and renouncing fellowship with churches, uh, with outposts of heaven. Like we're leaving that outpost of heaven because that outpost of heaven over there is more closely lined with my opinion on Babylon, you know. Um, so, so that's anger. This is the abusive speech that ends up as slander, which is low-key little brother anger. You just do it with a smile when they're behind your back or whatever. Slander. And so all of that to say, I'm done with the anger part right here. We can talk about, you know, that church over there or Anger sells books. We can complain about it, which I just did. Uh, 
without acknowledging that it only ends out there if we uproot it right here, right in here. Um, that's the key move today, whether it's around sexuality and something just hit you. I realize this is such a tender talk that I'm giving us, so embodied, anxiety levels, cortisol levels rising. You have to like focus on your breathing as I'm teaching. I, I think that's welcome, like the full gamut of your emotions where else will you go? Like, do that in the church. I'm glad you feel safe to stay and be anxious for a while in church. Welcome. You're okay. That's expected. We've been formed. And so right now the task is, the key move is from moving to, from like blame out there to, Lord, Holy Spirit, what are you uprooting here? What about my thinking? What about my behavior is actually keeping the old system alive in my life? Because then it's dictating how I value myself. And then I actually see God as a liar. Because he says I'm loved, but I'm calling him a liar. Oh, I, what would it take to believe that I am loved? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm deceived. A lot, like I said last week, like, we don't know when we're deceived. We need the Spirit's help. And he's gentle. He's gentle. It's not shame. It's not guilt. He's actually saying shame and guilt don't define you anymore. So hear the words of Christ as we come to the table. He says this, this is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then, come back and work things out with God. This is how we remember, because we forget. We forget, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are the family of God, you do not have to perform for that status. You've trusted Jesus, now it's the truest thing about you. You're the bride of Christ, get ready for a wedding. It's true. And now the best thing you can do for yourself and the church around you is to integrate that truth into your heart and body and belief system and live it. But we need each other for that. One Christian is no Christian. We need this interdependent family to remind us who we are. So I just want to pray for you and then let you know that we're going to end with prayer. Like if you want prayer, we're going to spend a song, maybe a song and a half, just opening up the room for pastors to come up and you, you come up if, you want, if something hit you, you're like, man, I just need the Holy Spirit's help. I don't even know how to make heads or tails of what I'm experiencing. Or maybe you do know exactly. I want prayer for this, vice, whatever it might be. Again, guilt and shame don't define you. Your love status does. So what would it look like to remember? Uh, the invitation is to remember. So Holy Spirit, would you come right now and shepherd us? You're a good shepherd. So help us to trust that the way you're leading us is toward life that is truly life. Help us to see like you see. To trust that your vision is good. I think of that old hymn, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art my best thought by day or by night. High King of heaven, my Savior, my light. You be my sight, God. You be my sight. 
And, and help, help me see through the relationships in this room too. Life that is truly life. Lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.